Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next is a podcast which covers economics, finance, history, politics, and current events. Today's session will be on war games, China invades Taiwan. Richard Montaigne and his team at the Center for a New American Security developed war games with retired defense officials and members of Congress. A few days ago, they entered into a war game to see what would happen if China invaded Taiwan. Spoiler alert, here comes World War III. Containing Chinese aggression in the South China Sea has become our number one foreign policy priority. I've had several programs on what happens next on this topic. So after our discussion with Richard Fontaine, I've included excerpts from our archives on this topic. You will hear from NATO's former Supreme Allied Commander James Stavridis, National War College strategist James Holmes, Johns Hopkins professor Daniel Markey, and Rory Metcalf, who is the head of Australia's National Security College. What Happens Next uses a team of interns to make this program, and I have job openings. Interns improve the podcast by selecting topics of discussion, editing, and production. If you're interested, please let me know. I make this podcast to learn, and I offer this program free of charge to anyone that is interested. Please tell your friends about it and have them sign up to receive our weekly emails about upcoming shows. If you wish, you can send me your email list, and I'll take care of it from there. All right, let's begin with Richard Fontaine's opening remarks. Why engage in war games in the first place? Wars are complex, dangerous, costly events. The games require us to confront the kinds of difficult choices facing policymakers and vividly see the consequences. We have a very talented team that designs and implements these kinds of war games. The NBC segment is just the tip of the iceberg. The team spent weeks researching and designing the scenario. And it did produce some real insights. The interest in Taiwan has been rising for obvious reasons, given that China continues to up the ante. The Speaker of the House's visit to Taiwan provoked a response. Three times over the preceding months, President Biden has publicly said that the United States will defend Taiwan if it's attacked. Everyone's trying to learn the lessons of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. The red team's goal was to unify Taiwan with the mainland. And the blue team tried to prevent the Chinese from doing that. That set up a crisis situation. Debate over independence in the Taiwanese legislature erupts into a political crisis. Beijing demands immediate unification talks. Taipei refuses to join. China mobilizes its armed forces, undertakes a significant buildup in the east, and ultimately takes a cross-strait operation against Taiwan to decapitate the government. And in so doing, launched preemptive strikes against the United States to keep the United States out of the war. That didn't work. America did enter the war on Taiwan's side, bombed China, and things escalated even further from there. Most striking in the game was how destructive this U.S.-China clash became, how quickly it escalated, and how the game concluded with no end in sight to the conflict. Japan and Australia entered the war. China and the United States attacked each other directly. And as the game ended, Beijing detonated a nuclear weapon above the ocean which would have marked the first use of nuclear weapons in combat since World War II. When the game was finished, both sides believed that they hadn't lost the battle for Taiwan and had intended to keep the war going at very significant cost. All this suggests a clash over Taiwan might well be a prolonged war rather than a short conflict, that it could very easily extend to regions beyond the Western Pacific, that both sides might be willing to escalate significantly, and that the consequences of such a war are particularly grave. The game illustrated some ways in which the United States and its allies can 
strengthen their deterrence, hopefully increasing the chances that they won't have to fight such a destructive war in the first place. I watched your Taiwan war games on NBC's Meet the Press. And what really shocked me was that China's opening gambit move to do a surprise attack against American forces. The red team did a simultaneous surprise attack on American forces in Japan and then destroyed Pearl Harbor. Why would China want to begin its war over Taiwan by attacking the United States and Japan? I mean, using the red team's logic, it would be like Russia making a surprise attack on the United States and the European Union in its war in Ukraine. I mean, this seems totally insane to me. What am I missing? We saw the Taiwan scenario is quite different than the Ukraine scenario for one big reason. The president of the United States said the United States would not intervene directly militarily. And that same president has said three times now publicly that the United States would defend Taiwan if it was attacked by China. So our calculation was that the United States was going to join the war one way or the other. And we also believed that Japan was going to join the war The question was, does the United States join the war with all of its forces intact or with some of its forces destroyed or degraded? And we chose the second, which meant that we had to launch a preemptive attack on U.S. forces. If you're going to do that, you are attacking other sovereign territory, in particular Japan, because that's where some of those U.S. forces are. Whether the Chinese would do that, that's hard to say, but it's certainly a scenario that I think we need to be ready for. There's a lot of discussion about the Quad, which is the undeclared military alliance that includes the United States, Australia, India, and Japan. Because of the attacks on Japan, the Japanese are clearly all in. In the war games, do Australia and India also join the fight? The Australians did join the war in the naval and air campaign against China. The Japanese did. The Indians did not. I don't think that the American side ever thought that they would, and certainly the Chinese side didn't either. Why did India want to stay out of the fight? And why does India expect the other Quad members to defend India if they are unwilling to contain Chinese aggression in the South China Sea? The Quad, of course, is not a military alliance. It's not a mutual defense pact, so it doesn't require the defense of each other the way that the alliances with Japan and Australia do, although Taiwan is not an ally of theirs. The Indians are more worried about their land border with China, which as recently as last year saw violent skirmishes along the line. What does it mean that India is a member of the Quad if a war breaks out with the other three members and India chooses to sit it out? Maybe we need to change the name of the alliance to Triad and not Quad. India today has its own interests, which include not seeing a Chinese invasion across their border, If China was to move on Taiwan and the United States and Australia and Japan were to respond, there's no telling exactly what the Indians would do, but I think that they would take non-military steps to show their deep disapproval. The Indians would have to calculate what are the risks with their land border, and I suspect that when they worked all of that out, they would stay out of the war. South Korea is nearly as close to Taiwan as Japan. American military forces are located in Seoul, but the Red Team left them unmolested. Why do the Chinese not attack American forces in Seoul? And will South Korea join the fight? The American troops in South Korea are there to deter an attack by North Korea against the South. Both the South Korean troops and the American troops are focused primarily with peninsular security as opposed to, say, the defense of Taiwan. That makes it quite different 
than the American forces in other parts of Asia, including Japan. So if there were forces that were going to come to the defense of Taiwan, they would certainly come from Japan. So the calculation on the Chinese team was, if we know where the forces are very likely to come from, let's hit those forces before they get here in order to make sure that there is a degraded force that's coming our way. We didn't think that either American or Korean forces were going to leave the peninsula to come fight for Taiwan. Let's go back to December 7th, 1941. American military planners were taken completely by surprise at Pearl Harbor. In a previous podcast on World War II battles in the Pacific, Yale historian Paul Kennedy highlighted that U.S. Admiral Husband Kimmel did not drop torpedo nets to protect our battleships because he thought a Japanese attack at Pearl Harbor was inconceivable. Was Team Blue taken by complete surprise in your war game when China attacked Pearl Harbor? Yes, in the game, the Americans didn't believe that the Chinese would launch a major preemptive strike against U.S. forces. They did take some steps, which turned out to be prescient, distributing forces around Japan and making it harder to target those forces than they would be if they were all in three or four places. The other thing that surprised the American side was the Chinese willing to escalate at a nuclear level. The Americans were trying to calibrate their responses to limit escalation to not make the Chinese think that their government itself was at risk of destruction. In each step, the Chinese blew through those those escalatory barriers and took it up another notch, which in turn brought the Americans up another notch on their escalatory ladder as well. Richard, you were one of the leaders on the Red Team. Why did you choose to escalate every chance you got? Our instructions were to reunify with Taiwan We made the decision that escalation was better because the status quo had not achieved its objective of seizing Taiwan, and de-escalation would have been a terrible failure on this personal legacy project for the leader of China, hence escalation, and keep the fight going. In Act 1, Scene 1 of the war game, the Red Team attempts to murder the entire Taiwan cabinet, but it doesn't work out. This is not a new idea. North Korea attempted to kill the entire South Korean cabinet when the South Korean government was visiting a mausoleum in Rangoon, Burma. They killed 21 people, but the South Korean president survived. After your assassination plan in Taiwan doesn't work out, China follows it with a full-scale cross-strait invasion of Taiwan. It's really hard to do one of these invasions when an island is properly defended. What happened? Every aspect of the cross-straits operation to seize Taipei, to establish authority on Taiwan from the Chinese perspective turned out much harder than we had anticipated. Hopefully, that is a wake-up call for the Chinese, but also, of course, a wake-up call for the Taiwanese. If you have Chinese trying to take your island, there is a very good case for asymmetric capabilities, sea mines. What you buy and how you train your forces to resist is very important. Invasions by sea are precarious. Normandy was a complicated and enormous invasion, and the Germans knew we were coming. The Allied invasion used 7,000 ships, 2,400 aircraft, and 900 gliders. It was an unprecedented undertaking. How could China do something like this without giving up the element of surprise? Also at Normandy, the Germans employed pillboxes on the hills above the beaches and made formidable defensive lines. Can Taiwan prepare for the invasion to make it very difficult and challenging for the invading Chinese forces? The goal of the 
red team was to seize Taiwan as quickly as possible and to declare a fait accompli before the Americans arrived. And then tell the Americans, look, the Chinese are on Taiwan, they've got control of this island, and the price of your intervention is going to be sky high. It didn't work because of the difficulties getting troops across the strait. The Chinese side wanted to achieve air dominance so they could protect the ships bringing troops across the strait. The Americans were still able to target Chinese vessels. The theory of the case was if you can seize Taipei, that would be sort of the center of political gravity for the island. That's true, but Taipei is not exactly a small neighborhood. As we saw in Ukraine, if the government is still going, the leader can rally people to resist. That was one of the reasons why the war went from a couple of days sort of thing to an indefinite, costly, drawn-out conflict. Putting sea mines in the strait close to Taiwan, I think, will be an obvious thing. And again, we see the Ukrainians doing this on the Black Sea, along the Black Sea coast, try to prevent the Russian warships from landing. There's some lessons in the Ukrainian experience. The Chinese are learning lessons of what not to do as well. Richard, if I were on your red team, I would have opposed a surprise attack on U.S. forces. If you want to keep America out of the fight, rule one, don't bomb Pearl Harbor. I would recommend a blockade and force the U.S. to escalate. What were you thinking? The game was constructed to draw the United States and China into a conflict. And so the instructions was try to take Taiwan. But that doesn't mean that's the entirety of the scenarios. The Chinese might blockade Taiwan. And in the aftermath of Speaker Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, they basically practiced a blockade of the island. Kinmen Island, three miles off of the Chinese mainland, much closer to the mainland than it is to the island of Taiwan. If the Chinese took Kinmen and then sort of dared the United States, is it willing to go to war against China for Kinmen? Erode the credibility of the American security commitment. So I think there's a number of other plausible scenarios beyond all-out invasion of Taiwan that attempts to be repulsed by the United States and its allies and the Taiwanese. During the Eisenhower administration, the Chinese bombed the Kinmen Islands, and Eisenhower and John Foster Dulles threatened China with nuclear weapons. The Americans have plenty of ways to challenge an invasion of these seemingly irrelevant but symbolically important Kidman Islands. The red team in this game started by attempting to seize the island of Taiwan and preemptively striking American forces. There was no question, no question that the United States was going to enter the war. You don't attack American forces en masse and then assume they're going to sit it out. The Americans were coming in one way or the other, so it's better for them to come in with less force than more. But any actual debate about whether the United States should enter the war, they took that off the table in the very first move. If the Chinese were to take Kinmen, you could even imagine them doing it in a relatively non-military way. Now, the upside is you might keep the United States out of the war. On the other hand, all you've got is Kinmen. So if your objective is to retake Taiwan, you got a long way to go. And so there's upsides and downsides to that approach. In 1998, I lived in Tokyo with my wife. In 1998, I lived in Saitama Prefecture. I didn't realize we were neighbors in Japan. A quarter of a century ago, U.S.-Japanese relations were seemingly strong, but there were concerns that the U.S. alliance might pull Japan into a war. In the past 25 years, the biggest geopolitical change has been the rise of China, and the Japanese rightly fear Chinese military aggression. There have been some fights over some uninhabited Japanese islands. And so there may come a time where Japan will either have to rearm 
or become a vassal of China if the U.S. is unwilling or unable to defend Japan. And the Japanese understand that there's an expectation that they will be an equal partner in containing Chinese aggression in the region. And if there is a war over Taiwan, the Japanese will fight, and fight hard, not just with sanctions and using bases and supplies. Your war games highlights China's recognition that Japan will fight and work directly with the U.S. So does this explain Chinese surprise attack on U.S. forces in Japan? It's very unlikely that Japan would stay out of a war between the United States and China over Taiwan, precisely because the Chinese would attack American forces in Japan, and therefore they've attacked Japan. The question then is, is Japan going to be active in its own self-defense or not? The appetite to engage in self-defense is much higher than it used to be. I mean, when you and I lived in Japan, America's wars from 1991 through 2003 and beyond were all in Europe and the Middle East. It wasn't a direct threat to Japan. Now they sense a potential threat to Japan. And I think the calculation that the Japanese would make about the defense of Taiwan is quite different than it used to be. Nevertheless, some of this would just depend. It would depend on who the prime minister is. It would depend on the situation. It would depend on the perception of who started it. A lot would turn on this question of whether Japan itself was attacked. But I think the chances that Japan would enter the war in some way, shape, or form are quite high. There's real historical animosity between China and Japan. That said, Japanese multinational corporations are huge in China. The Japanese have made massive investments in Chinese companies. Talk about supply chain disruptions. I mean, this would be end of days. The Japanese face the same kind of dilemma that every country in Asia faces and the United States. What country is America's biggest trade partner? It's China, the same country that the political leadership here every day is saying is a potential threat. This is wildly different than during the Cold War, where the United States and its friends and the Soviet Union didn't do much economically with each other, just didn't have much economic interdependence. Do you want to trade with a country that you think is a potential threat? The answer appears to be yes, but not across the board. During your war games, you included senior defense officials, as well as Wisconsin Congressman Mike Gallagher. And what shocked him was that America could not achieve air superiority over Taiwan despite their best efforts. How important was air superiority in the war game? From the red team perspective, we wanted air superiority to be able to ferry troops across the strait in order to land on Taiwan. We wanted air superiority over Taiwan so that Taiwanese aircraft couldn't attack Chinese troops that were landing in Taiwan. Later on in the game, we wanted air superiority to protect the Chinese mainland because the Americans were attacking ports and other areas on the Chinese mainland. In order to do that, part of this was this preemptive strike, not only on American forces in various places, but also on the Taiwanese airfields and bunkers where their own fighter jets are contained. Chinese hypersonic missiles could destroy American aircraft carriers thousands of miles from the war zone. In the war games, where did the blue team position the American carrier fleet? And could American fighters cause damage to the red team? Those carriers feeling vulnerable would retreat from the Western Pacific would make it very difficult, if not impossible, for aircraft from those carriers to fly and try to engage in the fight. The Americans didn't have air superiority, but the Chinese didn't have air dominance either. It gets to your point of distance. It also gets to the point about numbers. One of the things that struck me playing on the red team was just how deep the 
stocks were. If you wanted fighter jets, they had a lot of fighter jets. You wanted subs, well, we got a lot of those too. You want troops? Well, yeah, we got a lot of troops. We had a lot of everything. Americans have not been attacked from the air since the Korean War. We had air dominance almost immediately in Iraq and in Afghanistan. This is a very different scenario. And that's one of the reasons why thinking through carefully how this is different is pretty important. In John Lewis Gaddis's classic book, Strategies of Containment, John highlights two different strategies available to U.S. military planners. One was a symmetric response, which means that when your opponent escalates to fight in Taiwan, you fight back in Taiwan. With the asymmetric response, when your opponent invades Taiwan, you blow up their space satellites. You want to fight in Taiwan? Guess what? We're taking the port in Djibouti and Sri Lanka. We're going to blow up China's internal rail network and its oil pipelines between Russia and China. Did Team Blue consider changing the nature of the flight? It's not about Taiwan. We're going to pick your weakest links, and trust me, you're not going to like it. They didn't engage in what is called horizontal escalation. Certainly that is an available strategy, but it is also at odds with a strategy that's trying to avoid escalation, which I believe the blue team was trying to do. They wanted to keep this as confined as possible. They wanted the Chinese not to escalate to the nuclear level. If you're attacking Chinese bases in Djibouti, well, now you've attacked an African country. Horizontal escalation is a complicated calculation to make, but it certainly is a strategy available that didn't feature in this particular game. How did you apply the most important lesson from the film The Princess Bride, which is never get involved in a land war in Asia? Other than on the Korean Peninsula, there are no American troops on the Asian mainland. Land invasion, that's not on the table. What constraints did Team Blue face on attacking mainland China? Did they consider destroying the highways and rail lines connecting Chinese cities, destroying chemical and oil facilities, or damaging the electric grid? Can you imagine if the Chinese ports were bombed and those super container ships were listing at a 45-degree angle? The strikes on the mainland were exclusively air missile strikes that the blue team conducted. They hit ports on the Chinese coast and then some demonstration strikes in northern China, quite far away from the coast, as I think a demonstration of what kind of capabilities they could bring to bear. The issue for the blue team is you could attack Chinese cities. What do you achieve? And probably not from an ethical perspective that attacking some other civilian targets or anything would have anything close to the desired effect. After another Pearl Harbor, you want to talk about ethics? Last time that led to firebombing Tokyo and Hiroshima. How does this make any sense for China? Why do they care about the independence of 24 million Taiwanese who want to live in peace? If you believe that your national destiny and a leader's personal legacy is tied up in that reunification, that this is somehow akin to the South seceding and civil war, then almost any price is worth it. Part of the educational process of doing this game is to show how little enthusiasm anyone should have on any side for U.S.-China war. This would be unlike anything we have seen in a very, very long time. And therefore, the premium should be on how do we avoid that to the best as possible while being able to retain the protection of our interests. If the Chinese believe the status quo is no longer acceptable and that they must take steps in order to overturn it, then they're not going to achieve it peacefully. 
U.S. policy towards Taiwan has historically been that of strategic ambiguity. But Biden says that we will defend it. Which is it? The Washington gaffe is defined as when a politician comes out and accidentally tells the truth or says what he thinks. And this is not the first time that this has happened. George W. Bush said the same thing, that the United States would defend Taiwan if it was attacked. The policy is that the United States may, not will, but may defend Taiwan if attacked. And both in the Bush administration and now in the Biden administration, the remaining officials scramble to try to say that the policy hasn't changed. We don't have a mutual defense agreement with Taiwan. There's no treaty. It would be up to the president to decide what to do. But when the president himself says a priori what he would do, the policy may be strategic ambiguity, but he got a pretty good sense of what he would do if it came to that. There's no uniform answer because it depends on who you ask. The State Department is going to give you strategic ambiguity, but the guy who would decide is the president. Richard, your war games had three acts. Act one was the attempted murder of the Taiwanese president and cabinet with a simultaneous Chinese surprise attack on U.S. military forces in Hawaii and Japan. In Act Two, the Chinese take the war to the mainland U.S., blowing up military targets in Los Angeles, San Francisco, San Diego, Seattle, and Alaska. Act Three, China explodes a nuclear bomb over the Pacific. Why does China continually escalate by attacking the U.S. mainland and then using a nuclear weapon? What were you thinking as a leader on the red team? In the moment, certainly I tried to make decisions in accordance with the interests of the team. I don't actually want to see China detonate a demonstration nuclear blast over the Pacific Ocean. But the thinking of the red team was to escalate until the Americans understood that the Chinese side cared more about Taiwan than the Americans ever would. At some point, we would get to a rung on the ladder that was unsustainable for the United States. The theory was that the Americans would understand that the price of continuing this war would be too high. The giant has awakened in the past, but the giant also hasn't been attacked in the continental United States. And this would have been a game changer from that perspective. I end each episode on a note of optimism. Richard, what are you optimistic about as it relates to U.S., China, and Taiwan? I'm optimistic that the horrific scenario that we saw play out in this war game can be avoided through additional deterrence, some diplomacy, and some education and realization of how horrible the outcome could be if such a war were to eventuate. Part of the reason to game them out is so you can avoid having to face them in the first place. Thanks, Richard. I now want to replay excerpts from What Happens Next's archive on the subject of Chinese military aggression in the South China Sea. Our next speaker will be U.S. Navy retired Admiral James DeVritus. Go ahead, James. People ask me frequently these days, how realistic is it that we could simply stumble into a war with China that really is in neither nation's interest? Unfortunately, it is a real possibility. If you look at the basket of disagreements between the United States and China, they're big and they're getting bigger. Think about the dispute over who owns the South China Sea, a vast body of water the size of the Caribbean and the Gulf of Mexico, which China claims in its entirety. The way Hong Kong is being treated, the disputes over Taiwan, which China would very much 
demand become part of its loving embrace. We disagree with those positions, and we see China increasing its military capability relentlessly. China has more warships today than the United States of America. Ours are better, but ton for ton, especially if they're all packed into the South China Sea, big challenges for the U.S. Navy. So China's preparing for some kind of conflict. How will Russia play in this particular game of thrones? We're seeing Russia and China draw closer and closer together. Their ships operate routinely, not just in the North Pacific, but in the Baltic Sea, in the heart of Europe. The last time they conducted military exercises on their mutually shared Siberian border. It was the largest military exercise since the end of the Cold War. What about Iran? What about the role of India? I, for one, am cautiously optimistic about the rise of India because it's a democracy, because it enjoys an enviable geographic position in the heart of the Indian Ocean because it's already connected in many ways with the West. We should avoid a world war with China at all costs. What are the tools to avoid war? Reading, learning, education. China understands us better than we understand China. We have work to do. We need a strong military deterrent capability, cyber, unmanned vehicles, space, hypersonics, We need that credibility and capability. We need allies. We need to build coalitions so we can create balance against the rising strength of China without pushing them into a corner. NATO, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, there are dangerous times ahead. If you look at human history going back 2,500 years, you'll understand that there's a looming Thucydides trap when an established power is challenged by a rising power, a global war ensues. It goes all the way back to Athens and Sparta. It goes back just 100 years ago. Established power, Great Britain, rising power, the Kaiser's Germany, World War One. We know from World War One, the experience of economies and nations that are deeply intertwined, it would be incorrect to say that, well, our economies are really together and therefore it's unlikely we'll end up in a global war. That's what we need to avoid. That's the purpose of the novel, 2034, a novel of the next world war. Thanks, Admiral. We had Graham Allison discuss the Thucydides trap on this program. China is obviously a growing power and has certain political and military objectives. How do we encourage China to behave in a way that doesn't threaten our allies and encourage them to find non-military solutions to their political desires? We begin by understanding their strategy and using empathy. China wants to continue to feed its very successful economy with raw materials and export finished goods. This is called sometimes one belt, one road. It has two paths. One goes across the land to the north, the other through the Indian Ocean to the south. China will seek to expand that route. Number two, create a strategy the Trump administration attempted to engage with China, but they never developed a coherent strategy. I would argue what the Biden team must do is create a strategy that integrates military, diplomacy, political activity, strategic communications, economics, 
And in particular, that strategy needs a very strong component of engagement. Third, confront where we must cooperate wherever we can. So we have to confront on the South China Sea. We can't simply turn that over to China as territorial waters. But we should cooperate where we can, climate, pandemic preparation, because there will be another pandemic. You mentioned Chinese objectives to feed its economy with raw materials. If you go back to World War II, the Japanese wanted to feed their economy with raw materials as well. And the American put themselves in a position to prevent China from doing so, which led inexorably towards war. Is there a lesson there? We shouldn't put pressure on raw material supplies? What you're discussing from the Japanese empire was what they called the East Asian co-prosperity sphere. It was a strategy that had some similarities to what China is doing today. The lesson is don't back your opponent into a corner. Sun Tzu is famous for saying the greatest victory you will ever attain is the battle you do not fight, is trying to outmaneuver your opponent, create alliances, form patterns that draw your enemy where you want him to go. But Sun Tzu also said, when on death ground, fight. What we want to avoid is putting our opponents in a corner where they feel they are on death ground because then they surely will fight. China has the advantage because their mainland military bases border the fighting area. But to their disadvantage, their economic assets are also in the war zone. This is a very hard, pure military problem. The Chinese in this scenario have the, if you will, home court advantage. All of their ports, all their logistics, their food supplies, their oil, gas, everything is right there on the mainland. They also have the ability to operate out to, I'm sure James talked about this, uh, what's called the first island chain and the second island chain. These are the island chains, the wreaths of islands that go from Taiwan in the south up to Japan in the north and the Philippines are the outer side of those rings. China is very capable of flooding the zone and covering it with hypersonic cruise missiles, potentially being directed from space. So it's a very hard military problem. The best thing the United States can do is have access to these island chains so that we can have logistics support and put pressure on the Chinese forces before they can launch at us. And that becomes a very delicate dance just because you think that you are acting in a very measured, careful, nuanced way. Your opponent may not see it that way when on death ground fight. And when you cross a line and attack the homeland of an opponent, you really do cross a line, a pretty significant one. Bottom line, no easy answers here. Need uh, capable cybersecurity, forces that can operate with allies, partners, and friends, and be prepared to act from strength if necessary. Again, this is what we want to avoid. How important are asymmetric responses to Chinese military aggression? China is using asymmetric approaches. Their way of war comes from Sun Tzu. Sun Tzu was very much the asymmetric approach. Western powers tend to be Clausewitzian, meaning we go right up the middle very frequently. Asymmetry is a good thing to consider. 
But I'm going to give you both a good and a very dangerous asymmetry. I'll start with the very dangerous. The very dangerous asymmetry is the one you suggest. And the enormous red line for China is Taiwan. And the more we become tempted to, quote, encourage them to independence, unquote, the higher the likelihood of actual combat for decades. We've had a policy that's called strategic ambiguity, meaning we haven't declared we will fight for the island of Taiwan. We kind of imply that we would look with grave misgivings at any military move on Taiwan. And we have been very measured in the military defensive systems that we sell to Taiwan. I would say that is an asymmetric threat to China that is very, very direct. And you would want to only come to that in extremis, knowing that you are probably going to tip into active combat between the United States and China. And no one knows how that will come out. A good example of how the United States could be using asymmetry as we think about conflict in the South China Sea is how we use the U.S. Marine Corps. Some of the most forward-thinking wargaming is being done by the United States Marine Corps, thinking about how they could get behind those island chains that Professor Holmes told you about, and operating from very stealthy, capable ships, conduct special operations-type activities at scale. That's an asymmetric response that I think is less likely to drive us directly into the throes of a major war. Pushing for Taiwanese independence, we had to think of that as behind the glass, reserve that for the ultimate emergency. Do you think China will attack the U.S. mainland if we get into a fighting war with them? I'd say the odds of China launching significant strikes on the United States are quite low because Chinese capability is somewhat limited as you project forward to 2034. The odds go up significantly. We need to protect ourselves from kinetic attack. I would say by 2034, the best way China could use asymmetric attack against us would be using cyber, particularly if they continue to stride ahead of us in artificial intelligence, quantum computing, machine learning. That's the real longer-term concern. I asked political scientist John Mearsheimer what Europe's role would be in a Chinese conflict. He said that Europe would be irrelevant. What do you think? I am with John Mearsheimer on this one. I think it's unlikely that the Europeans will want to tangle with China. We want a strong, robust NATO. We want European defense spending to continue to increase. We want Europe to be able to forward deploy combat power. And by the way, the British are building a second large deck aircraft carrier. The French are building a new nuclear-powered aircraft carrier. Europe spends about $300 billion a year collectively on defense. That's more than China spends. The best way to do it is to work closely with them, and I think you'll see the Biden administration do that. Our next speaker is James Holmes, who is a professor of maritime strategy at the Naval War College. He has a new book entitled Red Star Over the Pacific, China's Rise and the Challenge to U.S. Maritime Strategy. Go ahead, James. Our Navy is not going to contain China's. Sea power is no longer just about fleets. 
China assumes its Navy remains weaker than ours, but it hopes the combined firepower of the PLA Navy, Air Force, and Strategic Rocket Force is enough to hold us at bay long enough to accomplish its goals, whether that means invading Taiwan, seizing the Sinkaku Islands, or whatever. We will do the same, using the U.S. Navy, Marine Corps, Air Force, and even Army to imprison China's Navy and merchant fleet within the first island chain. Small bodies of missile-armed ground troops on the islands will fight in concert with naval and air forces around the islands, sealing off the straits to Chinese egress into the western Pacific. We will make the first island chain into a solid wall, or a metal chain, as Chinese strategists sometimes call it. For example, U.S. Air Force bombers now practice dropping with precision minefields at sea and firing long-range anti-ship missiles. The Army is equipping itself with Navy missiles capable of raiding shipping. U.S. Joint Forces acting as an implement of sea power, will contain Chinese joint forces within the China seas to the best of our ability. Corralling the merchant fleet puts the economic hurt on China, while keeping the Navy penned up in confined waters brings a host of operational and strategic benefits. The U.S. Navy, Marine Corps, and Coast Guard are pursuing something they call naval integration and have even taken to calling themselves the Naval Service, singular. We are trying to make ourselves into one fighting implement rather than three affiliated but separate services. The Marine Corps, under General David Berger, has been driving this effort. The Marines are remaking themselves as a service that helps the Navy deny our adversaries control of the sea and eventually win it for ourselves. That is quite a departure from protracted land combat in Iraq or Afghanistan. It's why you hear Marines constantly talking about concepts like expeditionary advanced base operations or little operations in a contested environment. They are planning to land small units on Pacific islands armed with anti-ship and anti-air missiles to help deny China's Navy access to nearby waters and skies. They will make mayhem and then skedaddle to avoid Chinese counterfire. Our Navy is buying lots of small warships that pack a punch and that we can afford in bulk. The logic behind a big fleet of small ships is that we will lose ships in combat. There is no escaping that China's strategy and forces are formidable. But spreading out firepower and sensors across numerous vessels improves the ability of the fleet as a whole to fight on and win. The more impressive our battle preparations are, the better our chances of deterring China from aggression. If Xi Jinping gets out of bed every morning and decides today is not the day to roll the dice, military containment will have accomplished something big. The first island chain is ours to lose. This is our defense perimeter, just as it was 50 years ago in the Cold War. Our next guest is Rory Metcalf. Rory is a longtime Australian diplomat and intelligence analyst. He is currently the head of the National Security College at the Australian National University, and he's the author of the book, Indo-Pacific Empire, China, America, and the Contest for the World's Pivotal Region. Roy will discuss how to contain China. Roy, please go ahead. What's happening with Chinese power and disruptive influence, and what are the options in the contest to really manage that and limit it, perhaps not containment, but certainly to achieve a settling point that suits the interests of liberal democracies and of a rules-based order? There really is a major strategic contest or influence across the Indo-Pacific, this great maritime region spanning the Pacific and Indian Oceans. This is the primary theatre of China's strategic power play. And I would argue that China is working on many levels to achieve dominance. Look at China's military modernisation that we've heard about, particularly its naval modernisation. It's about economics, geoeconomics, that is the use of economics for strategic advantage, whether that's through 
infrastructure, through forms of investment, through attempts to dominate supply chains and critical technologies. It's a contest that's occurring in the realm of diplomacy, bilaterally, but also through regional organisations. It's a contest that's occurring through espionage and propaganda. So it's a mini-layered game. This is a multipolar region. There are many powers at work here. In fact, the overstretch that's built into China's efforts to dominate such a vast region with so many countries with their own interests engaged, that very overstretch creates the conditions for pushback, for new coalitions of countries to try to set boundaries against Chinese influence. The Indo-Pacific strategic idea energises and mobilises countries like Australia, Japan and India and Indonesia, these middle players in contributing to this pushback, these new middle players in these new coalitions of pushback. And what can they actually bring to the table if we're going to work with the United States to create a stable balance in this region that suits our values and our interests. I'm going to focus just briefly on Australia because Australia has really taken a lead in the last few years in demonstrating what middle players and middle powers can do. At heart, Australia is modernising its military, improving its naval and maritime capabilities so that we can defend ourselves and assist our friends. Australia is also being very active in hardening its own national infrastructure against political interference, against economic or technological sabotage. Think about the Australian position on 5G technology, for example, building our cyber capabilities and developing through our diplomacy with countries like America and Japan or Japan and India. Australia is pursuing all of these dimensions as a way to contribute to middle power solidarity that sets limits to Chinese influence and coercion and helps the United States to engage more strongly in the Indo-Pacific. And I think the Australian experience is proving something of a role model for middle powers and democracies everywhere in the world at the moment. And that is one reason why China doesn't like it. China is bringing to bear its own levers of coercion against Australia economically and in propaganda precisely because of the example that Australia is setting. And that goes to the final point. What are the limitations to this middle power resistance and solidarity? We've got to be realistic about what we can achieve. And that's where solidarity really becomes a key concept. Australia and others are building coalitions where we can try to set limits to China's bad behaviour, whether it's in the South China Sea or whether it's through foreign interference in our democracies, but we can't do it alone and we don't want to create expectations that somehow, for example, a country like Australia is going to ride to India's rescue when it confronts China in the Himalayas or a country like India is going to single-handedly help Japan if it gets into conflict with China in the East China Sea. We have to look at the long game that we are playing. It's about building new levels of cooperation on technology, on intelligence sharing, on supply chains and on military interoperability where middle powers can work with one another in the future but also with the United States and importantly create the conditions that encourage the United States to continue to play a decisive role in the Indo-Pacific. Rory, you mentioned that there's a quad military alliance that includes the US, Japan, India and Australia that will balance Chinese aggression. Can China peel off each of the individual players like in a Bruce Lee film and fight them each independently? 
I'm not worried about the risk of China peeling off one ally or one partner at a time. I think China has achieved the extraordinary feat in recent years of alienating all of us at once. I don't think China's going to intimidate individual countries to such an extent that they don't lend any assistance at all to their partners during time of crisis. It's going to be the US alliance system that drives the more formal responses to acts of coercion or aggression. So Japan and Australia are not treaty allies with one another, but it's very difficult to imagine a situation where the United States gets involved in military confrontation with China in the Indo-Pacific, and we don't. We will very likely have a role to play, even if it's an intelligence role and a support role, rather than always a frontline combat role. It's a long game. Could you explain to me why China is being so aggressive and upsetting its biggest consumers of its manufactured products? There is a dynamic inside China that quite inextricably ties the power and control of the Chinese Communist Party with external assertiveness. The party needs to provide the Chinese people something in response for their obedience and Xi Jinping's permanent legitimacy, if you like. And that can't just be economic growth anymore. It's got to be about national power, about national pride, a sense of siege against the rest of the world. This need for intensified authoritarian control at home has become tied with national assertiveness abroad. China is actually disrupting the very regional strategic environment that it ought to be trying to stabilise. We'd all like to see the Chinese Communist Party move back to a moderate reformist path that it seemed to be on 20 years ago. That does not seem to be the case under this leadership. Instead, there's a certain inevitability now to the dynamics of confrontation and crisis. Australian perceptions of this have changed profoundly in the past few years, and more and more Australians now see China at least as much as a source of risk as well as of economic opportunity. Very recently, Hong Kong had certain treaty rights, and these rights were violated. But there was a sense like, well, it's part of China. What could you possibly expect Australia to do to help? Do you think this half-hearted response will happen again with Taiwan? It's a great question. I think it's really important not to look at any of these things in isolation. The betrayal of Hong Kong and the betrayal of the one country, two systems agreement that China had signed on to has sent a very powerful signal to the region and the world about China's strategic intentions and about the difficulty we're going to have with, frankly, trusting China to abide by agreements. And that has shaken up opinion in Taiwan. Taiwan needs to stick to self-protection Yes, of course, there was a half-heartedness to the reactions of a lot of countries internationally, including Australia, in the sense that there are limits to what we can or would do to protect the rights of Hong Kongers. But there certainly was diplomatic outcry. And importantly, I think there's now the building of increasing solidarity with other democracies to find ways to hold China to account for this. I think we've got to bring the Europeans into this conversation. But in the end, Hong Kong was always going to be extremely difficult in this regard for us to have an impact on. Taiwan is different, not just for Australia, but for Japan and for a whole range of other countries in the region and globally. The big question is what happens if China uses coercion or actual force against Taiwan? This would depend to some extent on the circumstances, but I have great difficulty imagining 
a US-led response to Chinese coercion or attack on Taiwan that would not ultimately involve Australia, Japan, and potentially others as well. You could actually see the Quad come into play in those circumstances. You could even envisage a situation where, short of warfare, China conducts blockades of Taiwan, causing great damage to the regional economy. And as a result, other countries, including Quad members, have to impose their own responses against China. Can the Quad successfully contain Chinese aggression in Taiwan? If we can demonstrate a willingness to pay an economic price for taking a stand against China, then I think over time, as long as China does not succeed in isolating us individually, we are going to bring about change. China's rather extreme behaviour in recent years is a product of two things. One, a kind of overconfidence. There was a premature perception of American decline. America is far from finished in this region. But also a sense of quiet desperation on the part of China. China has huge problems that will come home to roost, whether it's the ageing demographic, the environmental and other problems internally, the mistrust that China has sown in so many countries around the region. All of these things are going to get more difficult for China over time. So if China wants to lock in its power and its gains, now is the time to do it. So now is the time for us to set limits that may actually become easier to sustain 10 or 20 years from now. My next question is for James Holmes about naval strategy. Before Pearl Harbor, battleships were expected to be the main source of American power in the Pacific, but it turned out it was the aircraft carriers that were the most important naval warship. Technology changes over time. What will be the most important weapon system in the battle for Taiwan? Military technology has come a long way since the Second World War. We have guided missiles, we have radar. Somebody back then would have been thunderstruck at some of the new technologies that have come about. The Pentagon's name for China's strategy, they call it anti-access and area denial. It's basically about using shore-based aircraft, shore-based missiles, and just an array of instruments to augment the power of the PLA Navy fleet out at sea. It's very much the same idea the Japanese had in the 1920s and the 1930s until they switched up at the 11th hour and attacked Pearl Harbor. But they were expecting the U.S. Pacific fleet to steam across the Pacific at the outbreak of war. And they figured out how to use land-based aircrafts to seize Pacific islands, put planes on them, use submarines and so forth to essentially subject the Pacific fleet to the death of a thousand cuts before a decisive naval engagement somewhere in the Western Pacific. That's kind of what China has in mind here. They expect that our Pacific fleet will come from the West Coast in Hawaii, and that they will start cutting us down to size as we come across the Pacific, South China Sea, Taiwan, whatever the theater of conflict is, they want to slow us down so that they can get what they want before we can actually intervene. Dan Markey joins us, who is a professor of international relations at Johns Hopkins SAIS and the author of China's Western Horizon. Dan? This is Dan here. I was wondering if I could just ask a question here. James, I imagine you're familiar with Chris Brose's book, The Kill Chain. At the core of it, if I understand right, he's pretty pessimistic about the U.S. investment in exquisite, complicated platforms that cost an enormous amount to build, relatively easier to target by Chinese forces. And what he'd like to see is a much wider investment in a lot of cheaper, more disposable forces, but ones that could still pack a punch. His concern is that the United States is not capable of actually turning the corner in that way. So I just wondered what makes you more optimistic. It seemed like you had a difference of opinion there. 
the service is actually embracing this idea of distributed lethality. That's actually an accomplishment to get them to take it seriously. The Navy, the Marines, and the other services were very slow to come to terms with the China challenge, having at least admitted that it's a problem once we set ourselves on that trajectory. I think we're going to be all right. It's definitely not an unequivocally rosy picture, but the trend lines are starting to turn in our favor. Getting Congress to buy into things like unmanned technologies and things like that, we're having a hard time because the Navy, since the turn of the century or thereabouts, has had a series of failed acquisitions, or at least ones that really underperform, whether it's the Ford aircraft carrier or the literal combat ship. There's definitely a political job to be done selling these concepts to Congress so that they actually will fund it and endorse it because ultimately they're the ones who make strategic decisions. James, would you be surprised if the Chinese attacked the U.S. mainland in a China-U.S. military engagement? The idea is actually keep them in the China seas, whether we can blockade them or sink them if we have to, or whatever the case may be. So we're trying to limit their ability to bring it to our own shores. Obviously, controlling the first island chain doesn't necessarily keep them from going over the first island chain with aircraft and missiles and so forth. Certainly in the national security community today, wargaming is really making a comeback. It's almost like the 1930s, all the wargaming in Newport vis-a-vis Imperial Japan, where China is basically throw us a roundhouse punch and evade the brunt of our offensive. So they can figure out how to do it. You might actually see that happen. Dan Markey, what does Russia think of China's rising military strength? how Russia will ultimately respond to what looks like at least a creeping, if not a galloping degree of Chinese influence. First, economic influence, followed by political influence, and then in some cases, security and even military influence. You really have to see this at least at two levels. Both of them are more concerned about the United States and to a lesser extent about Western Europe and East Asia. For Russia, it's pressure over issues like Ukraine. For China, it's global strategic competition. Since Moscow and Beijing see us as the problem, they see a lot of reasons to at least work together. You're right that Putin and Xi Jinping are closer together in many ways than we've seen China and Russia in decades. However, in continental Eurasia are a number of points of potential friction between the two of them. Russia, which has enjoyed the traditional place as the dominant security player throughout Central Asia, would not sit idly by and let China eat its lunch, if not for the fact that it was principally occupied dealing with us. Thanks to Richard Fontaine, Admirals James Devritus, James Holmes, Daniel Markey, and Rory Metcalf for joining us today. And that ends this session. If you missed last week's podcast, check it out. We had Mark Galliotti discuss Putin and Ukraine. I think what you'll find interesting is why Putin thought invading Ukraine would be a cakewalk and why there is little chance that he will be able to extricate himself from the current situation. I'd now like to make a plug for next week's show. Our speaker will be John Ellis, a professor at UC Santa Cruz, who will discuss the corruption of the humanities and what topics that you can no longer teach you can find all of our previous episodes and transcripts on our website, What Happens Next in Six Minutes.com. Replays are also available on Apple Podcast, Podbean, and Spotify. Please encourage your friends to join the What Happens Next community by signing up for our free weekly updates about upcoming podcasts. I would like to thank our audience for your continued engagement with these important issues. Goodbye.